This is CPX number 37, the teaching arm of the Catholic Church. This is the ninth article of the Creed as found in the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X, CPX number 9.8, from page 32 to 37. We're going to be doing a long question and answer, 38 to 72. Let's begin in prayer. God give you his peace. In nomine Patris, Affiliate Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit, Spirit of truth who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us, and save us, you who are all good. Amen. In nomine Patris, Affiliate Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Question number 38. Is there any distinction between the members of the church? Answer. There is a very notable distinction between the members of the church. For there are some who rule and some who obey, some who teach and some who are taught. Question number 39. What do you call that part of the church which teaches? Answer. That part of the church which teaches is called the teaching church. Question number 40. What do you call that part of the church which is taught? Answer. The part of the church which is taught is called the learning church or the church taught. Question number 41, who has set up this distinction in the church? Answer, Jesus Christ himself has established this distinction in the church. Question 42, are the teaching church and the church taught them two churches? Answer, the church teaching and the church taught are two distinct parts of one and the same church, just as in the human body, the head is distinct from the other members and yet forms but one body with them. Question 43, of whom is the teaching church composed? Answer, the teaching church is composed of all the bishops with the Roman pontiff at their head, be they dispersed throughout the world or assembled together in council. Question 44, and the church taught, of whom is it composed? Answer, the church taught is composed of all the faithful. Question 45, who then are those who possess the teaching power in the church? The teaching power in the church is possessed by the Pope and the bishops and dependent on them by the other sacred ministers. Question 46. Are we obliged to hear the teaching church? Answer. Yes, without doubt, we are obliged under pain of eternal damnation to hear the teaching church. For Jesus Christ has said to the pastors of the church, in the persons of the apostles, he who hears you hears me, and he who despises you despises me. Question 47. Besides her teaching power, has the church any other power? Answer, yes, besides her teaching power, the church has in particular the power of administering sacred things, of making laws, and of exacting the observance of them. Question 48. Does the power possessed by the members of the hierarchy come from the people? Answer, the power possessed by the hierarchy does not come from the people, and it would be heresy to say it did. It comes solely from God. Question 49. To whom does the exercise of this power belong? Answer. The exercise of this power belongs solely to the hierarchy, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops subordinate to him. Question 50. Who is the Pope? Answer. The Pope, who is also called the Sovereign Pontiff or the Roman Pontiff, is the successor of St. Peter in the See of Rome, the Vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, and the visible head of the Church. Question 51. Why is the Roman Pontiff the successor of St. Peter? Answer. The Roman Pontiff is the successor of St. Peter because St. Peter united in his own person the dignity of Bishop of Rome and that of Head of the Church. 
By divine disposition, he established his seat at Rome and there died. Hence, whosoever is elected bishop of Rome is also heir to all his authority. Question 52. Why is the Roman pontiff the vicar of Jesus Christ? Answer. The Roman pontiff is the vicar of Jesus Christ because he re represents him on earth and acts in his stead in the government of the church. Question 53. Why is the Roman pontiff the visible head of the church? Answer. The Roman pontiff is the visible head of the church because he visibly governs her with the authority of Jesus Christ himself, who is her invisible head. Question 54. What then is the dignity of the Pope? Answer. The dignity of the Pope is the greatest of all dignities on earth and gives his supreme and immediate power over all and each of the pastors and of the faithful. Question 55. Can the Pope err when teaching the church? Answer. The Pope cannot err. That is, he is infallible in definitions regarding faith and morals. Question 56. How is it that the Pope is infallible? Answer. The Pope is infallible because of the promise of Jesus Christ and of the unfailing assistance of the Holy Ghost. Question 57. When is the Pope infallible? Answer. The Pope is infallible when, as pastor and teacher of all Christians and in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine regarding faith or morals to be held by all the church. Question 58. What sin would a man commit who should refuse to accept the solemn definitions of the Pope? Answer, he who refuses to accept the solemn definitions of the Pope, or who even doubts them, sins against faith. And should he remain obstinate in this unbelief, he would no longer be a Catholic but a heretic. Question 59. Why has God granted to the Pope the gift of infallibility? Answer, God has granted the Pope the gift of infallibility in order that we all may be sure and certain of the truths which the Church teaches. Question 60. When was it defined that the Pope is infallible? Answer, that the Pope is infallible was defined by the Church in the First Vatican Council, and should anyone presume to contradict this definition, he would be a heretic and excommunicated. Question 61. In defining that the Pope is infallible, has the Church put forward a new truth of faith? Answer. No, in defining that the Pope is infallible, the Church has not put forward a new truth of faith, but to oppose new errors, she has simply defined that the infallibility of the Pope already contained in sacred scripture and in tradition is a truth revealed by God and therefore to be believed as a dogma or an article of faith. Question number 62. How should every Catholic act towards the Pope? Answer. Every Catholic must acknowledge the Pope as father, pastor, and universal teacher, and be united with him in mind and heart. Question 63. After the Pope, who are they who, by divine appointment, are to be most venerated in the Church? Answer. After the Pope, those who by divine appointment are to be most venerated in the Church are the bishops. Question 64. Who are the bishops? Answer. The bishops are the pastors of the faithful, placed by the Holy Ghost to rule the Church of God in the seas entrusted to them in dependence on the Roman pontiff. Question 65. What is a bishop in his own diocese? Answer. A bishop in his own diocese is the lawful pastor, the father, the teacher, the superior of all the faithful, ecclesiastic, and lay.
belonging to his diocese. Why is the bishop called the lawful pastor? Answer, the bishop is called the lawful pastor because the jurisdiction or the power which he has given to govern the faithful of his diocese is conferred upon him according to the laws and regulations of the church. Question 67. To whom do the Pope and the bishops succeed? Answer. The Pope is the successor of St. Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, and the bishops are the successors of the Apostles in all that regards the ordinary government of the Church. Question 68. Must the faithful be in union with their bishop? Answer. Yes, all the faithful, ecclesiastic and lay, should be united heart and soul with their bishop, who is in favor and communion with the apostolic see. Question 69. How should the faithful act toward their own bishop? Answer. Each one of the faithful, both ecclesiastic and lay, should revere, love, and honor his own bishop and render him obedience in all that regards the care of souls and the spiritual government of the diocese. Question number 70. By whom is the bishop assisted in the care of souls? Answer, the bishop is assisted in the care of souls by priests and especially by parish priests. Question 71, who is the parish priest? Answer, the parish priest is a priest deputed to preside over and direct with due dependence on his bishop a portion of the diocese called a parish. Question 72, what are the duties of the faithful toward their parish priest? Answer, the faithful should be united with their parish priest Listen to him with docility and show him respect and submission in all that regards the care of the parish. Thus are the words of the Holy Pope. Timestamp. Okay, so let's look at these questions in reverse order. We're going to look at four different questions. Question number 60. When was it defined that the Pope is infallible? Answer that the Pope is infallible was defined by the Church in the First Vatican Council. And should anyone presume to contradict this definition, he would be a heretic and excommunicated. Okay, now I'm going to give you some of my thoughts. Father Dave Nix here. You know, the Pope was always infallible in articulated faith and morals, but what happened in the 19th century is there was a new gilding to that, perhaps because they prophetically saw the confusion that was going to happen in the 19th, 20th, 21st century as far as the faith. When the Pope makes an ex cathedra, that means from the seat statement, we know that's infallible, that there's no errors in it. The first was in 1854 on the Immaculate Conception. And the second and only was in 1950 uh, on the Assumption. Now, between those two events in the 1860s was exactly what Pope St. Pius X was referring to here, Vatican Council I. Again, the Pope was infallible before this, but this adds a new turbo thrust to the understanding of it. And I want you to listen closely here because there's some people in the traditional world now who are doubting Vatican I but listen to what Pope St. Pius X said in his catechism to those people. He says, quote, that the Pope is infallible was defined by the church in the first Vatican council. And should anyone presume to contradict this definition, he would be a heretic and excommunicated, end quote. So for those traditionalists out there who are coming to conclusions that lead them to be excommunicated heretics, maybe their premise is wrong. They need to go back to their premise on the papacy on who is Pope, okay? So this is where, um, if you're being led outside the faith, your premise on something is wrong. Let's look at question number 58. What sin would a man commit who should refuse to accept the solemn definitions of the Pope? Answer, he who refuses to accept the solemn definitions of the Pope, or who even doubts them, sins against faith, 
And should he remain obstinate in this unbelief, he would no longer be a Catholic, but a heretic. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple of my thoughts on this. Someone told me at one point, some pope in the 18th or 19th century condemned suspension bridges. That's not an articulated faith of morals. So we're talking uh, when there's a very specific magisterial act and that the pinnacle of this definition is an ex-Catholic statement. As I said, the last one was on the 1st of November, 1950. That was, so that was 70 years ago. So don't get too bent out of shape um, if you don't like uh, a lot of the modernism that we've heard from Rome in, in the past 70 years. Because the last ex-Catheter statement was the Assumption of Mary on the 1st of November, 1950 by Pope Pius XII. Now, what is infallible in the church? What is without error in the Catholic Church? There's five things doctrinally. First is ex-Catheter statements, like I said. So far, we've only had two. One in 1854 and one in 1950, I believe are the two dates. Two, anytime the church fathers speak unanimously. Three, dogmatic councils, especially those that have anathema sit statements, like the Council of Trent. Fourth, creeds. And fifth, sacred scripture. That includes Old and New Testament. All five of those things, ex cathedra statements, church fathers, dogmatic councils, creeds, and sacred scripture are all infallible. Only one of those is also inerrant. So infallible means no error. Inerrant means every word exactly as God breathed and wanted. That is scripture. So those first five, all five of those are infallible, but only one of those is infallible plus inerrant, and that's sacred scripture. Every word is God-breathed. And so always keep that in mind. You'll meet, you'll meet Catholics who say, well, they believe everything necessary because they believe the two ex-Catholic statements, but they, believe all these, they disbelieve all these things through the Old and New Testament. Well, then you're a heretic. If you don't believe what's in the Old and New Testament, you're a heretic. That's the pinnacle of the written divine revelation of the Catholic Church. Uh, so don't even think about throwing those out if you want to consider yourself a, a good Catholic. So those five things, ex-Catheter statements, church fathers, dogmatic councils, and then creeds and sacred scripture, all infallible. And then the last one of those is infallible plus inerrant. Every word is God wanted it. Okay, let's look at question number 51. Why is the Roman pontiff the successor of St. Peter? Answer, the Roman pontiff is the successor of St. Peter because St. Peter united in his own person the dignity of the Bishop of Rome and that of head of the church. By divine disposition, he established his seat at Rome and there died. Hence, whoever is elected Bishop of Rome is also heir to all his authority. Okay, let me give you a few of my thoughts again. I mentioned some of these traditionalists who are coming to the wrong conclusion. They've really jumped off the wrong premise. If you want to understand the current crisis of the papacy and the correct premise, go listen to the podcast by Anne Barnhart. Sometimes Ann Barnhart has on Ed Mazza. Ed Mazza also is on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and I have uh, very close friends at Virgin Most Powerful Radio, so I thank them for all their great work. I'm glad that Ann Barnhart has on Ed Mazza, but he's wrong about one thing that has to be pointed out right here. He believes that there can be a bifurcation of the papacy and the Bishop of Rome. We just heard in the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X that's not the case. Listen to this again. Quote, by divine disposition, he's referring to St. Peter, by divine disposition, he established his seat at Rome and there died. Hence, whoever is elected Bishop of Rome is also heir to all his authority, end quote. So Edmaza is doing great work, but he's wrong about that thing. There can be no bifurcation of the Pope from the Bishop of Rome once he landed there. Yes, it is true that he was the Pope in Palestine before he made it to Rome. But since landing there, these cannot be bifurcated uh, at all. Okay, let's look at... Um, one more question here. Question number 43, of whom is the teaching church composed? 
Answer, the teaching church is composed of all the bishops with the Roman pontiff at their head, be they dispersed throughout the world or assembled together in council. End quote. Now, Vatican II was only a pastoral council. I mentioned about five minutes ago Council of Trent, which is a dogmatic council. A dogmatic council makes infallible statements of faith and morals. We've never had a pastoral council up to Vatican II, but it doesn't hold the weight of a dogmatic council. That's not just me. Pope John XXIII said that, and Pope Paul VI said that. These are the two popes that held it. They both said these are this, the Vatican II is not a dogmatic council, only a pastoral council. When Pope St. Pius X wrote this, he was referring to dogmatic councils on these things and was especially referring to this age when the Pope and all the bishops taught in union with all the past dogmatic councils on all of this. Now, one of the things you have to realize that if ever a time the articulated faith and the morals of the church seemed to change, and even in fact at the mouths of the bishops of the world did change, then we have to come to one of two conclusions. Either one, God changed his mind, or two, the bishops of the world diverted in a crisis much like the Arian crisis where they were teaching the wrong thing. So let me say that again. If ever a time in church history revealed a college of bishops who taught differently from the 19th century, different from the 18th century, different from the 17th century, different from the 16th century, different from the 15th century, then we could be sure one of two things happened. God changed his mind, or two, the bishops diverted from Christ's own teaching. Okay, how can we eradicate number one? Because it says in Matthew 3, 6, quote, for I, the Lord, do not change. That's, sorry, that's Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. God says through the prophet Malachi, for I, the Lord, do not change. So we know God can't change his mind uh, on his teaching there at all. Now, should this throw all of us into depression? No, I was talking to a priest last night, very traditional priest, and he said Mary knew all this was going to come, and still we have to do God's will that is placed before us here and now. Apparently, God's will for my life is to teach you guys the catechism as it has always been taught in the 15th century, in the 14th century, in the 13th century, in the 12th century, in the 11th century. This is our Catholic faith. My job isn't to reform the hierarchy. My job is to teach you guys the uh, Catholic faith. So we know your will is to learn it, not to just complain, but to learn the Catholic faith, to learn the Bible. Um, and that's why I hope you uh, subscribe to this. Um, I, this is all free. I'm not saying that to make money. This is entirely free. But instead of complaining, it's better to learn about the faith. So that's why I hope you uh, subscribe to this whole thing. Now, you will notice, however, that if you travel the earth, you will notice that what I'm teaching in the Catechism of Pope St. Pius X is different from 99.9% .9 of the parishes. I've been to India, I've been to Africa, I've been to South America, and nowhere except for traditional Latin Mass parishes are they teaching what you're getting in here. So again, if ever there was a time when things diverted from how it was in the 13th century, 12th century, 11th century, 10th century, then you can be sure that we are in something like the Arian crisis where the College of Bishops and Priests diverted from what Pope St. Pius X was talking about here, where the Pope and the bishops speak in union with the articulated faith and morals of Christ and the apostles. But again, this isn't reason to get depressed. It's just a reckon, you just have to say either God changed his mind in 1969 or we have a church crisis very similar to the Arian crisis in the 4th century. Now, last thing that I want to say on this. Um, this crisis is a little bit different. This papacy crisis, the bishop's crisis, 
the teaching uh, crisis, the liturgy crisis. Anyone who's seeped in church history cannot say, well, we've had bad popes before. No, what we have right now is very similar to the Aaron crisis, but I would say it's even worse. But the good news is heaven warned us. And so what I'm going to do is link, uh, I think here, if I'm pointing in the right direction, if you're watching the YouTube, a video that I made recently called Fatima and the Vatican. If you're looking back uh, through your podcast list, it's 11 podcasts back, go back to the 24th of October, 2020. And I'm gonna link it here at the end here. So if you wanna understand, again, why uh, everything that you heard from me read today by Pope St. Pius X is a little bit different in 2020 than it was in 1920 to someone reading this to their kids, go listen to my podcast slash video called Fatima and the Vatican that I will be linking right here uh, for you to listen to to explain why today is different from the previous centuries. Please say an Our Father for me at Benedictio Deum Epitentis, Patris Affiliate Spiritus Sancti, Descendit Super Devosic, Maniat Semper Amen.